too late, it's embarrassing to cancel. Well, maybe not. There's so many people. Nobody will notice. We're going to notice now. (laughs) Because it's nice to have a sense of obligation. It's actually a skillful means we can use that sense of obligation to help us do, just like we do in so many ways in our lives. We use that commitment to keep us out of trouble, to help us do what needs to be done. Any questions, nice and both questions about the course that comes to mind? So again, let me know if uh, you're not getting the email tomorrow or today, tonight when you go home. Or you can sign your email on the list and we'll include you. So I want to take a couple minutes and talk about karma tonight. Uh, that's what we studied in the fall and there's a very natural... You know, that the study of karma naturally brings us to the study of codependent arising, this process nature. Right? It makes sense because cause and effect is just the beginning of the mind recognizing and opening and trusting that it's all in movement. It's all a process in movement. That's what this is. I noticed in my file there's a little card with a quote from Thich Nhat Hanh. He says, in the present moment, you may even transform the past. In fact, it doesn't matter how lost or deluded we were in the past. The only thing that matters is what we're doing now, what the mind is doing now. And if we're repeating what we did in the past, then nothing's going to change. So, it's easy to lament, you know, some people lament, oh, I'm so old, I should have started this a long time ago. But what's really relevant is to do the best we can now with the present moment, to be interested in the present moment now, to, like I said in the guided set, to be willing to learn from our life experience. And the thing is, it's, it's actually not hard. It's not like we've got to figure something out in order to learn from the moment. It's more about letting the reality in. If that's what causes the change, we don't need to even interpret what's happening now. We have to find a way to be interested in the way that it is and let it touch our heart. It will change our mind. The reason our mind hasn't yet changed is we've not allowed that experience in. We keep interpreting, massaging the data, you know. We keep interpreting or projecting our view, our expectation, our idea on our experience instead of letting life in, letting life touch the heart. I mean, one obvious example is just, you know, the unceasing movement of life and at the very beginning of the course this fall on uh, karma I <coughs> reminded everybody about the Buddhist insight, insights under the Bodhi tree you know, the proverbial big night for the Buddha after leaving behind his family and his wealth as a prince and becoming a seeker for six years or so and uh, figuring out that intense ascetic practices just makes the body weak and the mind weak and letting go of that approach and eating more balanced food getting his health back finding a quiet place under a big tree now what it called Bodh Gaya in India he sat and he made this resolution that, you know, I feel my mind, my heart was really balanced, really clear. And made the resolve to wake up, to see what hasn't yet been seen that night. And so I like thinking about the three insights the Buddha had that night as uh, this awakening to the movement 
of all things. You know, and he, as an archetypal figure, he had this capacity, he had developed this amazing mind that was really stable, really clear, profoundly sensitive. So, we can imagine that. And so the Buddha not only could see things that we see, but he could see things that an ordinary person can't see. And so one of the things he saw, and certainly we, we can get this sense, is he started to see the great movement of things, beings coming and going. And you know, sometimes even in a superficial way, we, we flash on that. You know, how many generations coming and going I heard a talk uh, while I was <clears throat> eating my lunch, um, famous historian talking about John Adams on Minnesota Public Radio. Maybe you caught some of that. But you just think about generation after generation after generation. And then before that, my ancestors and beings being born, beings dying. You know, are the squirrels we see at the feeder are they related to the squirrels we saw when we bought the place in 1993? How many generations? You know, the birds that return every spring and leave every fall. And just the sense of the continuity. How many springs have we seen now? 54. You know, how many times we've been together in this room and then the class ceases and then another class is born and then it ceases. So the Buddha started to see that, except with, instead of with ordinary vision, we imagine, you know, it's said in the tradition, he had extraordinary vision. So he could actually see that in terms of the, his own lives coming and going. So not just how many years, you know, me reflecting back how many years, how many birthdays, how many sorrows, how many happy days, how many headaches, how many vibrant healthy days. You know, just that, that you can imagine someone with extraordinary sensitivity, not only, evidently there are people, you know, there are reports of people remembering past lives, so let's, let's just assume that that's a possibility. So the Buddha saw all his past lives coming and going. And then, in the next watch of the night, he saw not only his lives, but everybody's being, all beings, lives coming and going through all time, past, present, future. It just all opened up. You know, in physics nowadays, they, they talk more and more about, you know, this whole idea of the linearity of time. That's just an idea. And then whatever it is, you know, it's all available. It's all here, in a sense. So you can imagine, I mean, just open our minds to the possibility that somebody could perceive that, wake up to that. And so as the Buddha was waking up in the second watch of the night to the second insight, it included not only the movement, the coming and going of all things, but now he started started to become sensitive to the um, the way of the way that things were coming and going, like the moral or the karmic qualities of the coming and going. That when people were naughty, you know, something happened to that coming and going. That naughtiness, that sort of being mean, being having a narrow mind, a tight mind, a fear-based mind, a greed-based mind, affected the process of unfolding. Having a loving mind, a, a wholesome mind, a friendly mind, affected how it all unfolded. So that, you could say that that second watch, the insight during that time, that evening, late into the evening, really revealed sort of this, what's skillful and what is unskillful became ringingly clear in the Buddhist mind. Like really, really getting it. Because it's not like you just sort of got, oh, I was unskillful and now everybody hates me. But seeing it infinitely through so many lives, the same law playing itself out, you know, narrowness leads to narrowness. Expanded selflessness leads to expanded beautiful states over and over and over 
until there was no doubt left in the mind, this basic law. <coughs> Nobody made up this law. It's just the way that it is. And we have to confirm this in our own practice. It isn't enough that the Buddha awoke to this, had great insight, clarity about this law. We have to see that being played out in our own actions. And we don't have to see every life, past, future, present, you know, that to kind of get this. We could just observe our own actions and those are immediately around us and we all learn the same law. And in the third watch of the night, as the Buddha was aware of the movement, the third and, and most powerful insight arose. So he's there, first just seeing the movement, beings coming and going. In our way, with our limited view or perspective, we see moments coming and going. So it's really the same thing. It's just uh, you know, it's just how much is being seen. But we see how moments come and go. When you're sitting in meditation, you just see the unfolding of time. Some sits go by, seems like in a few minutes, an hour goes by in a few minutes, and other sits for an hour, it's like three or four days. And you just, you really get a sense of that, that way that things unfold. Like sometimes it's like moving torturously slow, and sometimes uh, easy flow, effortless unfolding. No friction, no resistance. Nothing can mark the time. You know, it's the resistance that marks the time. It makes things feel like they're lasting forever. When we're happy in life, it just flows on. The next he saw the lawfulness of that flowing on. Like how, how things move. What causes the movement. And in the third watch of the night, Understanding the movement, aware of the movement, right there, playing out in, you know, in his own heart and mind, the perception of what was right there in the moment for him. And seeing the impersonal nature, that the ultimate causal force, the most relevant causal force in that movement, the most impactful element in that uh, uh, that movement is the uh, the addition of attachment or clinging taking things personally so just to see that play right in his own experience when that's present then there are consequences when that's pre- not present there's no problem no no self no problem that's one Buddhist monk once said so when the self is there taking it personally, then the whole thing that's being seen is problematic, is wasteful. No self, no weight, no problem. So often in Buddhist terms we call this the realization of the four, four noble truths. How it is that dukkha, suffering arises, arises and how it ceases. And this is the insight in the third watch of the night And it's also the insight of dependent origination because as the Buddha got that, as he started to awaken to, oh my goodness, you know, self problems, no self, no problem. Then then it occurred, you know, in the mind, in his mind, you know, well, no self, no problem, self problem. So... What is it that I have been taking to be self with a problem? Because it's not that. So he wanted to describe it. So he got interested in how there can be a sense of a self and a problem. How can that be when in fact there isn't a center because it's a process. When something's a process, by definition, there's no center to it. It's just an interdependent unfolding. So the Buddha was going back and forth and then it occurred to him, well, what is that interdependent unfolding that makes it feel like it's me who's suffering, me who's got a wakeful life, me who wants to be free from suffering? What is that? So he did, his mind described it to him, but not in self-terms. So dependent origination, or if you want to call it 
codependent arising. It's the Buddha's explanation of our personal experience of being a somebody who's got a weightful life who wants to be free of that weight, which is our ordinary experience, right? Like, how can there be that experience when it's this impersonal process unfolding? And so the Buddha describes that, and that's what we'll be studying these next seven weeks. We're, we're going to be describing these cycles, this condition pattern that's unfolding all the time, and what we take to be me having a life. So it's the Buddha talking about what we take to be me having a life in natural, impersonal, conditional excuse me, terms. And then that, that really allows us, you know, just that model then allows us to have a counterweight to the self-view. Dependent origination is the counterweight to the self-view. Now we have sort of two conceptual models. There's me, you know, having a life. And then there's this other description that describes the mind-body phenomena in this impersonal way. And so, learning it and memorizing it, really, and the Buddha talked about it in different ways, so it's not so much you have to memorize it a particular way, but you have to understand it intellectually and not enough so that you can use it to get interested in your actual experience. Because if you don't have it, you're going to always fall back into the model you do have down. We've got the self-model down. Since day one, we've been conditioned to work with that self-model. I've mentioned before that um, back when I was getting started in my practice in the early 80s, I read a, a book, and I was, I was also teaching uh, elementary school at the time, called, uh, what was it called? Magical Child, I think. Maybe some of you know that book. Anybody remember the author? Anyway, it's an interesting book. And uh, one of the, as I remember at least, the thesis or the idea behind the book is like, well, what would happen if somebody raised a child, an enlightened person, you know, somebody with free of neurotic tendencies, raised the child? You know, and it was sort of somebody doing some deep, deep thinking about education, because <laughs> that's not how we educate people. Um, but what, what if? What would the child then, because of sort of maybe karmic conditioning from the past, you know, what would they pick up? What would they become? It's just an interesting question. And when you contemplate that, then you start to feel like, uh, you know, we did the best we could. Any parenting or any of us who, you know, taught younger children. But you feel badly for not being wiser, not being more enlightened and more free. And not just with kids, but with each other. It's like that's the gift we can give each other is, as best we can, being as awake, as alive, as free as we can be. So before we move on to dependent origination, just a few more thoughts about karma, just to understand this uh, cause and effect movement. It's a little bit different than a mechanistic view of cause and effect. There's sort of two dynamics that operate in the process. When there's this, that is. When this isn't there, that isn't there. So that's one piece. So, like, when I'm angry, then there's this, you know, maybe this tension in my body. When I'm not angry, that tension isn't there. So it's not, that's not coming out of the past. That's like, it's synonymous with something else. And then there's the more, the one where we recognize more, like, when this arises, then that will arise. When that's not happening, then that's not going to happen. So that's more like this is conditioning that coming out of the pa- when this is coming out of the past, then it sets in motion that. 
So we have these two elements that are driving karma. And without that, it would be very mechanistic. You know, one thing just leading to the next. But in the moment, there's this possibility of recognizing that. Like, when there's an awareness of anger, there can be something else there. I might not be able to stop the anger from arising because of my conditioning and then what's happening, the trigger, you know, somebody insulting me or something. I may not be able to stop the anger from happening. But when there's awareness of the anger in the moment, then there can be freedom from it, not having to act it out in some way. Otherwise, there would be no learning. You know, we'd be destined just to keep repeating things. There's a very funny poem. I'm sure many of you have heard this. I think the last time we did this course in 2008 or 2009, Clint, uh, somebody who still comes to the center, uh, shared this poem. Autobiography in five short chapters. Chapter one. I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I am lost. I'm helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Chapter 2. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place. But it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter 3. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it is there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter 4. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter 5. I walk down another street. (laughs) And that... I like it because it... it's, it conveys this uh, deepening insight in karma and how it really changes things. It's like, you know, we could learn all sorts of skillful means to deal with our, ang- our tendency to be angry. You know, or maybe you have a tendency to have a lot of shame or another person has a tendency to be needy in certain ways. But we all have our own patterns or not-so-skillful patterns that we're dealing with. And, you know, we have all these different tricks and uh, skillful means to deal with it. We avoid certain situations, you know. We use our willpower to keep ourselves from acting it out in really unskillful ways. And we have stories we tell ourselves that can help modify the negativity of that emotional pattern. And who knows what else we use. But it's all a struggle. You know, it's like we've got a wild beast and we're sort of, you know, have different kinds of cages and ropes and things to manage the beast, but we still have that beast. But going down another street is, I like that sort of turn. It's like, well, maybe we don't have to own that beast, the whole monster. Maybe there's a way sort of that sort of change the whole nature of the experience. And that's really what I think this third insight of the Buddha is. And it's what understanding karma sets up. Initially, we understand karma so we can get really good at intentional actions. Stop doing the bad intentional actions that have bad results and start doing the good intentional actions that have good results. We just get better and better at it and our life works better. And, of course, we get attached to that. But as our life is working better, things settle down. And we, and we start to notice that even though my life is pretty smooth, it's still a pain in the butt to have to be good and to have to sort of do it, do the being good part. And it just raises the question, like, is there, is there I mean, the mind is naturally in- interested. Is there more freedom here? Or is the best we can hope for is to be really attuned to skillfulness and unskillfulness? Because one of the things that that attunement reveals is 
letting go is the most skillful thing. So owning the identity of being the person who wants to be skillful has to be let go of. And that's what that attunement, like getting interested in karma, will naturally lead to that point where you realize the most skillful things in terms of karma is to let go of self-view. And that doesn't even... It, it won't necessarily... I mean, philosophically, you can think about it, but what really turns the mind in that direction is when it begins to see the weight of self-view. See, it isn't even about whether there is a self or there isn't a self. I think it's much more useful to think about it in terms of what's skillful. Because the life that we live, you know, the life, it's really the life of thought, of concept. It's totally constructed anyway. You know, whatever view or construction or meaning or idea you have about all of this, it's just that. It's just what your mind has put together. So the idea, through the deepening understanding of karma, is to put together a story that is in perfect alignment with nature so it can never be challenged. So there's no tension in the story at all because it completely aligns with the way that it is. And so that's, that's really what we're doing. That's what we're discovering is that it works. That's why the Buddha uses that phrase, come and see. He doesn't try to, he doesn't have to convince people. He just has to inspire people enough to, to check it out and their own experience will confirm that it works. So, you know, you don't, you don't need to sort of use guilt or anything to kind of keep people in the, the sort of fold, you know. Because the practice really works. It really is liberating to pay attention in this mindful, kind way really changes things in a beautiful way. And we end up living in a way that's uh, more functional and more skillful. This is from Buddha Gosa, who is a Buddhist monk uh, several hundred years after the time of the Buddha and wrote a very famous meditation manual called The Path of Purification. For suffering is, but no sufferer. Not the doer, but certainly the deed is found. Peace is, but not the appeased one. The way is, but the walker is not found. And so this is a nice short version of dependent origination. Like, there is a life, a mind and body, or whatever we want to call it here, but there isn't somebody having the life. That's that's what we call wrong view. That's a construction of our mind that has all kinds of unforeseen, negative, painful consequences. But because we can't see outside of that box, that self-view box, it doesn't. It never occurs to the mind that the, the view itself is setting in motion so many weightful consequences. And that's why it's so important to have some teachings that just brings in that perspective that there's an alternative view to self-view. And then just intellectually to be inspired by the nuts that were willing to uh, do some of the work that the Buddha suggests. Here's Ajahn Jayasaro, one of the better-known senior <coughs> Western monks in the Ajahn Chah tradition. He says... This person doesn't realize the truth. Rather, it's through understanding what this person is, or what our experience is, that the truth is revealed. And then finally, this Tibetan saint from long ago, Milarepa, famous, sort of the patron saint of Tibet, Tibetan Buddhism. I've, I've obtained all my knowledge observing the mind within. All my thoughts become the teachings of the Dharma. And apparent phenomena are all the books one needs.
which is just a, another way of saying using our experience to be our teacher. It's the famous line, you know, about Ananda always ends up being the fall guy for the Buddha to help the Buddha make points. And so here's another one of those occasions where the Buddha, where Ananda thinks he's, you know, you know how this is. I definitely have this in my personality, you know, kind of wanting to impress my teachers um, all the way back to elementary school. And uh, so Ananda goes, he's talking to the Buddha. It is amazing, Venerable Sir. It is astounding how deep dependent co-arising is and how deep its appearance. And yet to me, it seems as clear as clear can be. And the Buddha's going to put him in his place. Don't say that, Ananda. Don't say that. Deep is dependent co-arising, and deep its appearance. It's because of not understanding and not penetrating this dharma, this teaching, this truth, that this generation is like a tangled skein, a knotted ball of string, like matted rushes and reeds, and does not go beyond the cycle of the planes of deprivation, woe, and bad destinations. From birth as a requisite condition, as a requisite condition, come aging and death. Thus it has been said, and this is the way to understand how from birth as a requisite condition come aging and death. If there were no birth at all in any way of anything anywhere, and the utter absence of birth from the cessation of birth, would aging and death be discerned? And Ananda says, no, no, sir. And he goes through the whole chain of dependent origination to really show that this whole thing is all dependent on everything else. It's like uh, the whole process itself. It's like, uh, I don't really understand holograms completely, but there's something, each part has part of the whole in it, includes the whole. And it's like this experience we have. So if we change one thing, the whole thing gets changed. That's the beauty of this system. So bringing in awareness of the system is the thing that changes everything. Ignorance and suffering depends on misperceiving, on ignorance. Non-ignorance, and you don't have this world of suffering. Ignorance, and you have this world of suffering. Non-ignorance, and it disappears. Now, people don't like this because we're attached to the world of suffering in all kinds of ways. And I don't mean attached like we're blind to it, <clears throat> but in a way, it, it gives us meaning, you know, the thought that there's a lot of suffering in the world. Even attachment to the idea of being compassionate to the suffering. But we really want to understand that, I mean, this. if, you, if you're interested in the teachings of the Buddha, he's really talking about this uh, experience that the, the, the sort of process and the interdependent nature of suffering depends on things being the way that they are. And when that changes, then it's something else. And we want to just start observing this in our own life, how when we're in a funk and then maybe we're fortunate enough that a particular thing shifts and we're mindful enough in that moment and we see the mind going for, or the world or, of our experience going from you know wasteful and it's a problem and I don't like it to not a problem fine even in that simple experience of going from a hell realm to an expanded state and to really see that it's like a different reality but what changed? And a lot of times the mind, out of habit, will kind of tell itself what changed. Well, now this person cares about me, or now I've figured out this problem. But the more we observe the mind carefully, we see that the change is much more subtle than that. It's like when the mind is investing, attached to narrow views, narrow ideas, then our world gets very heavy, very dense, very dark. But when the mind is not doing that, then the world appears differently. This is part of the uh, exploration you can do this week. And then next week, as I mentioned, we'll have small groups. So 
it'd be really nice uh, this week to get interested in the cycles of suffering and stress in your life where you feel some weight and and uh, and like bringing a real fresh like how is this process of suffering a feeling tired a feeling burdened by life what are the ingredients that are at play I mean some things you can't change you know if it's 20 degrees below zero you know that's not one of those ingredients you're going to play with what we can play with are things related to our attitude our view the assumptions the mind is making what the mind is projecting and generally we want to look at things that we think aren't in play but actually are in play I mean, this is the great thing about having been practicing for a while, and a lot of you know this, is that we don't believe what we tell ourselves. You know, she doesn't love me. You know, and then we kind of, it's like, we don't believe our own voice anymore, our internal voice, our internal dialogue. Well, I don't really know. I mean, sometimes she loves me, and sometimes she probably doesn't love me. You know? Or... You know, we think the world is out to get us. Well, sometimes it is, and sometimes it isn't. And so we just, it's harder to, to be lost in drama for long periods of time the more we practice. Because it just doesn't hold up. We just don't believe it. We don't believe what the mind is trying to tell us. The story's gotten old. We've seen through it. It's like it has all these holes through it, you know, and you can kind of see reality behind the the drama you know it might be close and it might be fearsome but it it's somewhat porous and we realize it's just like you you know when you're in an intense movie and you realize you remember right in the middle of the horror horror scene you know the shower scene or something you remember it's just light and color being projected on a screen and there's a bunch of people eating popcorn around me <laughs> and it loses its sort of intoxicating power like oh yeah that's right <laughs> it's just a movie <laughs> so this would be really nice to share in our small groups next week because your own experience with this as you begin to contemplate suffering especially because we're motivated to look at suffering but also then just get just as interested with more expanded and joyful states what's there what's not there in those states how can you play with it can it become even more expanded more beautiful more light more free anything that could be teased out and to really have the sense this empowered sense that uh, reality is our responsibility the reality we inhabit is our responsibility and I know there's a lot of sort of superficial new agey teachings around this that but there's a truth to it but the thing is if you want to really play at this level you've got to do the work which is your mind has to be stable, steady, and interested. You have to, you can't be sort of like doing it to sort of get something. Because that greed doesn't give you the stable platform we need to do that kind of investigation. The investigation has to be really pure, like a pure interest in the truth. A deep resonant desire to see things as they are and we know if we really want to see things as we are we can't be manipulating because it, it disturbs what we're seeing it has to be hands off all there can be is interest clear seeing you know what we call vipassana that's what that means is seeing things as they are everything else we give to nature and in a sense we're taking refuge in the clear seeing. That's also what we mean by Buddha. Buddha is the clear seeing, the clear seeing knowing Dhamma the way it is. And then from that, we understand you know, how freedom comes to be and how hellish states come to be. So I think I'll leave it here. <clears throat> Next week, we'll, I'll talk about the whole chain and the different ways, the different sort of tools that have been used in the tradition to remember it because it would be nice in the course of the seven weeks to memorize the chain in some way so you can bring it to mind easily but we have about uh, nine minutes are there any questions or even sharings from your own practice you'd like to bring up for the group what comes to mind
Yeah, Judy. Um, you know, I was thinking about this you know, with our language, you know, we could construct a sense of separation as a concept, you know, like I'm apart. Just like an infant has to do at some point, you know, and developmental psychologists can sort of pinpoint that place where the infant, or I think it's actually, I don't know, what is it, in the twos, maybe, twos or threes, or 18 months, I don't know, some of your parents might know, where the child really conceives of themselves separate from the parents. And first, you know, it's all just together. It's all just one thing. You know, they don't, they're not making distinctions between the seeing and the hearing and the smelling and the tasting and whatever cognitions are happening. And, uh, but at some point, they start to sort of feel, organize their experience in a certain way. And so, if you've got a screen and you're looking through, the, that, seed of like that screen is important or that screen is me it gets intoxicating and then it's like we stop looking beyond the screen all we can see is the screen it's the most interesting thing it's what's really important because it's me and then we lose everything else that's beyond the screen so you know there there's there needs to be a handful of strategies to help us one is is to just develop a lot of sensitivity, which we call samadhi, you know, where the mind gets really steady and still, because that increases the odds of recognizing, oh, the mind is fixated on the screen, you know, and now with the, the mind is more steady, it can be, it's more easeful, because it feels good when it's steady, it has that inner bliss, and it relaxes the sort of neurotic doing, and then it notices, you know, oh, looks like there's something beyond well, what is this? You know, it gets interested. Teachings can also be a skillful means that we bring in, like, uh, hey, by the way, there's a screen, and it's called the reality we keep seeing and understanding, and it's only that. It's only something we keep seeing and understanding, and there's something else that can be discerned or awoke, awakened to. So teachings come in, and they can sort of, uh, like, we start to recognize, oh, yeah, I am doing this. And once we know what that is, the sort of the fixation on self is, then it's easier to imagine the not doing that, you know, even though it might be somewhat accidental at first. So I think that's really what we want. We want a handful of approaches to start loosening the screws. It's like that funny line, I forget who said it, um, awakening is accidental and the, the path of practice makes us accident prone. Because in a way, it's the mind, the, the ego-based mind, you know, it's, it really is dependent on the way it sees things. So it, it's not going to, it's not easy for it to intentionally let go. It almost has to be an accident in that way. I mean, I, I think that's mostly a joke, but there's some truth to that, you know, that accidental part of it. Other thoughts come to mind? Yeah. I had an interesting experience today. You know, I was driving around and I put the radio on the stand so it samples mm-hmm. and, you know, you kind of go through the cycle over and over and all of a sudden 
take care of me in the end. It's really poignant to see that my own mom and dad and other older people, you know, and where the body is less able to do those fun things that the body can absorb into and the mind has its own limitations and isn't able, isn't interested in so many things. You know, and one of the few things that's left is to reflect on the good moments and to look at the photographs and to talk about things from the past. But you can get a sense of being around people in those states, just how limited they are in finding things to distract themselves from aging and death. And it's, it breaks our heart, I think, if we let it in. You know, so I'm motivated, personally. <laughs> I think you have to leave it here. It's 9.02, so let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Appreciate the wonderful teachings all of our spiritual ancestors, the women, the men who did their practice in their busy lives as best they could, modeled it, shared it, and were the grateful recipients receiving this wisdom stream, doing the best we can, living the practice, sharing the practice as best we can. May our practice be part of the causes and conditions for real peace and freedom from suffering in the world and in our hearts. And thanks, everyone, for being part of this community. Great. Venerable Sakima will be teaching uh, a week from Thursday, I think it is, and we have a couple of workshops. Gail Iverson's teaching a workshop this Saturday with Ramesh on mindfulness and physical pain, and uh, Jean Haley and Alex Haley, uh, mother and son, teaching a workshop on mindful eating. That will probably be very interesting. I'm not sure there's space. I'm assuming there's space for both of those. A number of other programs coming up as well. So, see you next Monday, everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.